You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Did you know that ketchup was once and first used as medicine? Did you know that tug of war actually was an Olympic sport? Did you know that people used to say prunes when posing for pictures in the 1840s because smiles were seen as childish? Did you know that the Vikings actually were the first ones to discover America? Approximately 500 years before Christopher Columbus, the Scandinavian explorer, uh, the brother of Leif Erikson and son of Eric the Red, died in a battle in modern-day Newfoundland. Did you know that the Eiffel Tower in Paris, France wasn't originally intended for Paris, France? It was actually intended for Barcelona, Spain. That was its original intention. When Gustav Eiffel presented his design to Barcelona, they thought it was too ugly. So he pitched it as a temporary landmark for the 1889 International Exposition in Paris. has been there ever since. Now when you think Paris, you probably typically think the Eiffel Tower. I trust that when you were in school as a kid, some of you might still be in school as kids, you maybe think history is boring. You know, all those dates and names and places, a series of facts of people and events that you have to simply memorize as best as possible in the shortest amount of time as possible to regurgitate as accurate as possible to then never remember it again. Perhaps you're an exception to the rest of us, but that's what happens oftentimes until then you begin to realize history can be quite interesting, quite intriguing, even helpful, kind of makes things make sense, at least more than they did before you knew the history. These dates and names and places actually have context to them. Why are things the way that they are? And can also give you, give you a sense of where things might be going in light of the history. Well, this is how many people view the Bible. Largely a historical book. You know, a, a book that was originally written in other languages, the one we're reading it in today. Largely filled with dates and places and names of people that are of little interest to you today. In fact, maybe a lot of those names you can't even pronounce with any confidence yourself. And if most of us were honest, we might handle the Bible like a teenager handles the refrigerator in their house. They walk up to it, open it quickly, see if there's something they can quickly snack on before they leave and run back out the door. Never thinking about preparing a meal for themselves or how to maybe perhaps prepare food for other people. And that's often how people treat the Bible in the same regards. Well, today I want to help you with that. Two weeks from today, we're going to start going through the book of Joshua together 
in what's known as the Old Testament. Now, testament is another word for covenant, a covenant as a point of explanation as to how God communicated and revealed himself and his plans. And then you have the New Testament, known as the New Covenant. Even as we heard last week in 1 Corinthians 11 at the Lord's Supper, where Jesus himself says, as cited in 1 Corinthians 11, when Jesus says, a new covenant in my blood. The significance of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Well, today, in order to better understand Joshua to come, I want to make sure I help set the scene. The Bible, which just to be clear, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, as Ryan made passing reference to the resources at the Welcome Center, we do have them in the back for you for free. There is small, thin ones. That's just the New Testament. But we want you to have the whole copy. We have those for free. If you don't have a Bible or perhaps you have it in an older translation that's maybe hard to read, it's not comfortable for you in language you can understand, but we'd like to provide the accurate and readable translation and It's there for you. Now, just to be clear, these are not stocking stuffers for you to go figure out what to do for your friends for Christmas. Go get a case of Bibles for your friends. That's not why they're there. They're just there for you, for you to get one Bible. But for those of you who have a Bible, we're going to take a look at what what is this thing? What is this about? It's known as 66 books, but are they really books? over about 40 different authors, two original primary languages it was written in, in the Old Testament, primarily in Hebrew. A lot of you wouldn't know Hebrew if it was right in front of you. Aramaic with a few passages in there, and in the New Testament in Greek. There's different kinds of writings in the Bible. There's history, there's poetry, there's letters, there's prophecy. And really, interestingly, as we think about all those authors, if I was to ask you the question, who wrote the Bible? What would you say? Moses, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, Luke. And in that, you would be right. These, after all, are the human authors. And yet, if I asked you the question again, no, no, but who really wrote the Bible? For some of you, might be like, I don't know. Is this a trick question? Well, yes and no. Because you have to understand the Bible represents itself as having what's known as dual, two, dual authorship. Uh, Let me direct your attention to the screens and you can see this passage of scripture from 2 Peter. Listen to what Peter says himself in the middle of talking about the scripture in verse 20 and 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, he's not talking just prophecy versus poetry, thing else. He's talking about scripture as a whole, talking about the Old Testament. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not just saying, what did Jeremiah think? What did Moses think? As if it's simply a matter of human opinion and human commentary. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the reality is, is that, yes, it's true that Jeremiah and Paul and Luke and many other authors wrote the Bible. God used them as he wrote through them. Their language, their context, their culture, their personality, all being ordered by the Holy Spirit. And so we have the writings of Paul. We can get to know his personality, and yet we also see in the middle of all this God's divine revelation. The Bible is not a book of quotations. 
I have books like that on my shelf. Books where you can just sort of pull off the shelf and say, give me something on money. Give me something on time. Give me something on whatever the topic might be. And you might find in that book of quotations any number of people throughout history, some Christian, some non-Christian, we have something to say about that little sound bite. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is also not a collection of books in the sense that by divine authorship, God is writing a larger story. One story told using different people in different contexts, in different circles of life to show God's master plan. What is God's master plan? What is the pinnacle? What is the climax of Scripture? Where is it all leading and for what is its intended purpose? To show that God redeems sinners through Jesus Christ, His Son. I want to ask you, if you've not done so, turn to the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis. You're not familiar with the Bible? This will be an easy one for you. Literally go to the first page in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The chapters and verses were later added in history. They were not in the original writings of Scripture. They're helpful to us today because I can make a reference to you like this. Where do I turn in Genesis? Oh, it's somewhere towards the beginning, somewhere towards the middle. I could say Genesis 1, verse 1. It's a helpful reference that the church has benefited from today. Here's the main point. And really, you could say the outline for our purposes this morning of what I want you to see as we sort of lay down the groundwork for what's coming in Joshua. God creates powerfully. He communicates clearly. He saves graciously and he runs his world undeniably. More could be said, but not less than that can be said. We're going to see that as it unfolds this morning because I, I want to help you in the same way that I have these glasses that helps me and when I read to bring things that otherwise seem a little fuzzy, now becomes quite clear. I want to help you be able to see the Word of God more clearly. So first of all, God creates powerfully. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Starts off with this declaration, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a summary verse capturing all that would follow thereafter as the days of creation are broken down. And throughout this, what I want you to sort of see by highlight, if I can draw your attention to the verses, stick with me here as I cite them to you. I'll look at verse 3, and God said. I'll look at verse 6, and God said. I'll look at verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, God said. Verse 14, God said. Look at verse 20, God said. Verse 24, God said. Verse 26, God said. You might be like, Eric, uh, can you just tell us it's in there a bunch of times? You have to cite every single time. I know what you're thinking. Why do I want to keep drawing your attention to this? Well, one, because for the sake of time, I can't read all of it, but I want you to see there's a rhythm. But the rhythm is not just a repetition. I want you to see what's actually happening. God simply speaks and life exists. The action he takes is the revelation of himself in that he communicates. 
This is profound. We, we would later, as we learn throughout Scripture, get more detail of what's happening here in Genesis 1. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul, who gives us, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we've read that earlier, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul gives us greater explanation of what happened in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when it specifically ascribes Jesus, the second member of the triune Godhead, God the Son, how he created all things and in him holds all things together. So you just begin to see this as this continues through. Even in verse 2, the reference to the Holy Spirit, as you see in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The significance of this is that everything that God said, there is a corresponding result. You see it in verse 7, and it was so. Again, verse 9, and it was so. Again, verse 11, it was so. You ever sometimes feel like you're having a conversation with somebody and they're not listening? Parents feel all this time with their children. You know what I'm talking about. That idea of maybe as an employer having a conversation with your employees about, okay, we've agreed in this meeting that we're going to start on this day at this time. We're going to accomplish the project with this task, and you're going to work on this shift, or there's point of instructions given, and inevitably you're like, is it me? I, I'm pretty sure I've been clear about this. You know someone who has never been denied whatever he has said? God. Now, you, you might originally think, oh, but, but Eric, I can think of examples where he commanded and people disobeyed. Yes, but in the grand master plan, everything God wants, God ultimately gets. As Job would say, nothing could stay, nothing could keep back his hand, nothing thwarts his hand, nothing redirects it. God is not up in heavens frustrated like, oh, man, if only they would recognize how good I am. As if somehow God and humanity are playing chess together. And he's like, oh, I didn't see that move. We see here in Genesis, there was this constant rhythm. God said, let there be, and it was so. And everything he declares was good. That's exactly what it says here in verse 4. Look at it, Genesis 1. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 9, God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. And this continues throughout the scriptures in chapter 1. This declaration of God's creation, the accomplishment, and the declaration of it being good. Friends, you know what's missing in chapter 1? Sin. Sin isn't present. In a sinless world, which we'll get to in a second, in a sinless world, Everything is good. Everything is untainted by sin. Now, you and I have never known a day in society, in our own personal hearts, there's never been a part in history we could read except for these pages that we could see history without sin. But there was once a time when there was no sin. What we see here is how God creates powerfully. He is, as the Bible describes him, sovereign. Sovereign is this idea of kingship. It's this idea that God is over everything, in charge of everyone, and can do anything, whatever he pleases. 
however he pleases, with whomever he pleases. He is the rightful ruler over everything. He is powerful over all of creation. Everything comes into existence by his word of command. The recognition of this is to recognize all matter exists with a purpose because the creator designed it so. I think it's fascinating to me how many people today, perhaps a lot of you sitting here today, have been taught and believe in evolution. Now, to be quite honest about evolution, what's often missing in the term evolution are the words in front of it, theory of evolution. Evolution today is just sort of subscribed as being the assumed ground zero of all existence. And yet it is exactly that, a theory that cannot be proven, constantly speculated, imagined and contemplated, and sometimes really held up by Christ, or two Christians, even by some Christians, as the checkmate to Genesis. This is religious fable. Really. By all means, tell us. How did something come into existence from nothing? Oh, that thing before that. Yeah, before that. Yeah, before that. Yeah, before that. I mean, nothing doesn't come from nothing. What, what, where does it come from? It does not mean there's not good questions and conversations and discussion within that framework, but nevertheless, God establishes from the very beginning of the scriptures that he exists. And notice that in Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what we don't get in Genesis 1? We don't get an apologetics for God's existence. We don't get, hey, I need to introduce you to the first character. He's God. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Let me make a defense for his existence. In fact, the reality of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is creation itself testifies of God's existence. Its very existence testifies of a creator. God's creation is good and it is ordered. What you see in the very beginning here, it's a theme that continues throughout Scripture, is what you begin to see, the kingdom of God. There's no small reason why Jesus would say in his first introduction, as testified in the Gospel of Mark, in his first thing he says, his sort of first sermon going public, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, when Jesus opens his mouth to speak, what does he say? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Friends, throughout the entire scriptural reality from Genesis to Revelation, there is the establishment of the kingdom of God. There's the rejection of that kingdom. There is the promise that God will provide for that kingdom. There is the securing of that kingdom through his son. And there's the eventual reign of that king on the throne in the future where all of creation is under his subjective rule, his, his, his loving rule. So first of all, we see that God creates powerfully in Genesis. Secondly, we see God communicates clearly. Look, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. You see as God sort of slows down under the record that Moses gives us here, writing in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 and uh, through, through 25, I'll just read the first couple of verses here. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When there was no bush of the field, when, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Later on, God would say the significance here of what's taking place. Verse 15, Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. And he commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And he goes on to describe how he does that. The significance here is to recognize God is lovingly concerned for Adam. He gives him a wonderful environment to live in and provides the perfect partner for him. It's interesting how throughout history today, we've continually tried to plug our ears and close our eyes to God's intended design. Today, society's doing everything it can, especially in the West, to not only close the scriptures, but to act like such revelation, even by natural, natural appearance, is not even known to man. To redefine marriage, to redefine what it means to be man and woman, to be in relationship, to understand God's intended design. What do we see here in the scripture? Well, in verse 25 of Genesis 2, man and woman enjoy complete intimacy without fear or guilt. And it actually says something that makes the kids blush. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What an odd verse. What's that statement about? No fear. No guilt. Fully known. Fully transparent. No insecurity. Complete trust. Completely open to one another. No shame. You and I have never known that day. We don't know what that's like at all. In fact, what's interesting is the reversal of society today trying to propagate nudity and tell ourselves there should be no shame. Trying to rewrite history as if to say we should not be ashamed of that. But no matter how much you try to tell yourself so, it doesn't make it so. Because the reality of what God designed because of sin was what that should look like in the context, only in the privacy of the intimacy of a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And yet today, with pulsating sexuality and sensuality, how commonly are we racing to show our bodies to each other, to make the contours of our body known, to remove all imagination, to bring the bedroom to the grocery store, to put it on the front page of our magazines, that we don't have to speculate. We've seen it because you've demonstrated the contours of everything God has created. 
while you try to tell yourself you're not ashamed. But friend, the world of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 is a world in which there is no sin present. And only a man and a woman in the context of marriage knew that intimacy. And what's interesting is the first thing they did when they sinned is they went to cover themselves. Our sin is so bad today, we're trying to uncover ourselves. We're trying to display this reality of our sinfulness. Look what happens in Genesis 3. What otherwise is beautiful, it just turns nasty. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. What happens here in Genesis 3 is that Satan causes Adam to doubt the clarity, listen to me, the clarity, the truth, and the fairness of God's word. That strategy has not changed today. Let me just say that again to you. God tempted Adam and Eve to, to doubt the clarity. Did he really say? Did he really say? The truth, is that right? Is that right? And the fairness, that doesn't seem very fair. God seems a bit insecure. He's like he's keeping stuff from you. Nothing has changed. But what's crazy is we keep falling for it over and over and over and over again. What did Adam and Eve do wrong? I mean, after all, you gotta ask yourself the question, right? What's wrong with a little bit of fruit? I mean, you look at it in verse six of chapter three. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. A reversal of roles as to who's leading who there. And then it says, and their eyes of them were both open and they knew that they were naked. And the first thing they did, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. How ironic is this? They disobey God's clear command, deciding that they will decide the standards by which they will live. That rather than submitting to him, it's an act of fundamental rebellion. Uh, listen to what Von Roberts says in God's big picture. We, we have it for you here on the screen. He says, the knowledge of good and evil, that phrase there that God's talking about earlier in Genesis 2, refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong but rather to deciding what is right and wrong. Their sin is that of law-making, not just law-breaking. Friends, this is why as Christians, if we live in a country like we do in the United States, and we have the capacity to participate in the governing of our society as we do as citizens, we are right and wise to participate in that endeavor. Voting, getting involved, being connected, because we love our neighbor and we want our neighbor to benefit from laws that help human flourishing, not human deconstruction. What we see here in Scripture is that their desire to go their own way than the way of God's word was a desire to say, I don't want to listen to your law, I want to make my own laws. I want to make my own laws. Nothing has changed. Continue to be the case to this day. And as a result of this 
Sin affected everything. It affected men and women. They covered themselves with the complete openness and intimacy was gone. Uh, Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. When God has a conversation with Adam, what does Adam do? He points to Eve. It's her. It's her fault. Is there there anything changed today? I mean, I just want to go first. I'm a married man. Do you know how much of my sin I have blamed on my wife? My wife does. She's aware. More than I'd like to admit. I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor of Christians. You think, you know, you guys don't do this stuff. I'm just here to confess to you. We do. I mean, not all the time. I want to be clear. But that temptation has not changed. So the audacity of Adam, he is saying, I do not take responsibility. He's doing what? He's doing what we call today blame shifting. But what's crazy is he doesn't just blame the woman. He blames God for the woman he gave. That's a new low. Verse 16 seems to be a power struggle here. When God speaks to Eve about her desiring her husband, it's not a sexual desire. It's speaking of this sinful desire to to master, to lord over him. Eve's desire to dominate Adam, which he would resist and seek to rule over her in an an overbearing way. They're going to destroy each other. And this continues. Verse 17, he says, curse is the ground because of you. Works used to be a good part of God's creation, but now it's going to be frustrating always now in a fallen world. It's only affected man and woman and human beings with creation. It's also affected human beings and God. They're ashamed and they hide from God. Look at Galatians, I mean, not Galatians, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. What happens? Verse 8 of Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day, and man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, <laughs> we just, can we just take a minute and just kind of laugh together at the stupidity of sin? So prior to this fall, their relationship with God has been nothing but good. God has created them from nothing. They owe everything they are to him. It's undeniable they have nothing without him. And not just that he's impressively powerful, he's been so personally invested relationally with them. Like, if there's ever somebody you want to go to, it would be God. I'm in a jam, God. They don't only don't go to God, they run from God, but then look where they decide to hide. What does it say? It says they're amongst the trees of the garden. (laughs) That is like a four-year-old hiding behind the coffee table in the living room from their mom and dad. Now, when you look at a four-year-old doing that, you might in that moment, if you're playing a game of tag, go, how adorable. How naive, how adorable. Well, this is naive minus the adorable part. This is the creature hiding among the creation from the creator and believing that that's a successful plan. And yet, friends, this is what you and I are tempted to do regularly. What do you do when you get in a jam? you're probably tempted to do the same thing I'm tempted to do. Not go to the one who I should take it to. What often happens when you and I sin because of our guilt, we know we've done something wrong, because of our shame, how bad we feel, what do we do? We often go hide. God is over here 
open arms, ready to receive, to restore us back to relationship. And the very thing we ought to do, we do the very opposite thing. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. As mankind spreads throughout history, so does his sin. It's only one chapter later, Genesis 4, you have the first two siblings in history. The first two kids. You thought your kids fought? No offense, you don't know anything like it. Adam and Eve, first two boys, got their first two kids in history. One of them kills the other out of jealousy. That God presumably likes one better than another. Kills. And then repeats the same sort of accusing accusation against God. When Cain says to God, what am I, my brother's keeper? When God asks him, hey, Cain, where's Abel? Again, God going after Cain. And what does Cain say? What am I, my brother's keeper? The ironic reality of the truth of Scripture is, yes, you are. You are. It's not just Genesis 4. Genesis 5 is the first record of people dying through the genealogies. Genesis 6 through 9, you have the flood of all of the planet. Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12, you have Abraham, the one who God has made a promise through. Abraham, this great guy who lies about his wife. You ever been embarrassed about a friend in public? Embarrassed about your girlfriend or boyfriend in public? He's married and he lies, he's not married to her. Now he's got it's seemingly a virtuous reason. Well, I was afraid that they would kill me. But now he's just thinking about himself. So seemingly the, the head of it all, Moses, I mean, Abraham, he's not the best reputation. And as the story continues throughout Genesis, just the first book of the Bible, lying, murder, rape, war, kidnapping, slavery, stealing. Like, Eric, this is a really positive, upbeat message you're giving us this morning. Friends, history is unbelievable, not simply because of what it teaches us about us and our ancestors. It's actually more unbelievable if it wasn't revealed here because of what it teaches us about God. It's against the canvas of the backdrop of our sin. Of course we throw missiles at each other. Of course we bomb each other. Of course we shoot each other. Of course we attack each other. Of course we steal each other's property. God said, Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And ever since then, we've just been living out that prophecy ever since. Everything is tainted by it. It's overwhelming reality. And this is why we see God not only creates powerfully, he not only communicates clearly, third and sweetly, God saves graciously. God saves graciously. Now, many of you know the Bright Line train, a yellow high-speed train. It travels from Miami to Orlando at a rate of 125 miles per hour when it's at full speed. And it gets from Miami to Orlando in about three hours. Now, some of you are thinking, I've driven the turnpike not much less than that, more than that. I know, I know what you're thinking. You know who you are. So at 125 miles an hour at three hours, you think, that might not be that impressive. Well, it's because it's got stops. 
It's, it's got to stop, right? It's gotta, it goes to Miami, it's going to stop at Aventura, it's got to get to Fort Lauderdale, it's got to get to Boca, it's got to get to West Palm. There's stops along the way. It's got to slow down. People get on and get off and pick back up and slow down. People get on and off. And then you got this other problem we have here in South Florida, tragically, but commonly, people see the high-speed train and jump in front of it or don't know how to get off the tracks with their cars from it. So it's complicated. This is what happens with the Bible. The Bible has an origin in Genesis and a destination in Revelation. Like the bright line starts in Miami and ends in Orlando. The Bible starts with creation and is headed to a new creation in Revelation. If you were to read all 757,349 words, at least in the English standard version, that's how many words there are, in one sitting, you would arrive at your destination in one sitting 72 hours later. But I imagine there's probably not a single person in this room who's done that. Instead, understandably, a lot of people get on and off at different stops along the way. A lot of people, for example, get on and off at the Psalms. Nothing like a good reading of your Psalms to kind of get yourself dialed in. Other people want to get to know Jesus more, understandably, and so they jump into the Gospels. You got Matthew, you got Mark, you got Luke, or you got John. Other people are just in the history of the church and go to Acts, or maybe one of the letters to the churches in Acts, like we just studied the book of Galatians. Or maybe some people are like, you know what, I actually want to go to the very end. How did all this thing end? Let's talk about Revelation. I got questions. Most people have never been on for a full ride and have not seen all the landscape of God's word that's telling the whole story. This is why one of the best things you can do as a Christian is to actually read the entire Bible. One idea I give to you is you're coming into the end of 2023. Maybe begin now to think about and be planning for the beginning of 2024. You don't have to wait till then, but it's an idea for you to read the Bible an entire year. I've had the joy to do that myself and do it with my family, and it is remarkable to see. There's different Bible reading plans. You can read it as a sort of laid out Genesis to Revelation. You can read it based on sort of different sections of Scripture each day. You can read it based on sort of the history as it happens throughout history as you read it. But to actually say, I know the whole story. I've actually written the bright line of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, and I can see it. And I'm amazed by it. And I would trust if that was true that you would perhaps even greatly understand why I say this third point. God saves graciously. What's remarkable in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 is the response of God when man who has sinned hides from God. Genesis 3 verse 9 says, but the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you known the tree of which I command you not to eat? And then just here it goes with more problems. Verse 12, he starts to accuse God. It just continues from there. What I want you to not miss is verse 9. Who calls to who? God, thankfully, is not sitting in heaven, arms crossed, tapping his foot, wagging his finger, shaking his head making a tisk-tisk sound, letting Adam just grovel in his sin. I told you so. I gave you everything. Even the command not to eat from that tree was for your good, and yet you would not listen. So I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait. I'm going to rub your face in it. 
You're going to learn how bad it is. I'm going to make you miserable. The reality is Adam's not long in his sin before God comes and pursues him. And this cycle continues throughout all of God's word. God saves, God restores, man sins. God pursues, God saves, God restores, man sins. I'm gonna be honest. I wouldn't do the things that God is doing, not just to those people, but even to myself. You've been a Christian long enough confessed enough sins enough, wrestled with the temptations of the flesh enough that you're like, I feel like you made a mistake in saving me. I certainly think it was a better preacher to preach to Grace Church, a better pastor to be here in Miami, and certainly a better Christian than you should have picked somebody else. But that's kind of the point of what God is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 throughout verses 3 through 14. Why does God save sinners? He says repeatedly three different times, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not long after verse 9 of chapter 3 where he pursues man that he then promises a savior who will crush Satan. Genesis 3 verse 15. God shows his continued love for Adam and Eve by providing the clothes for them. Verse 21. Did you notice that? The first deaths in the Bible are actually the deaths that God created for the covering of Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve's sin. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul would write, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He'd give more explanation in Colossians 2, verse 15. He said he disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them open to shame by triumphing over them in him, referring to Christ. God in Genesis chapter 12 would make a promise to Abraham, not because Abraham was like the best guy. He certainly would have been the guy that we would have picked. And God uses people that we would never pick. Noah was just like all others. Don't think that Noah was like the best guy in town. Abraham laughed at God. That's why he's got a son named Isaac, which means laughter. Jacob is a deceiver, deceived his brother. Moses is a stutterer who's wanted for murder. Israelites were nobody when there were no bodies. There were literally not a single Israelite. And God promises to them. And this is how God works, continually saving sinners because he saves graciously. Friends, if you think you have sinned too much, maybe even hearing the stories this morning of Joanne and David to think, wow, that was more transparent than I'm used to hearing in church. But still, Eric, I don't think you know my story and what I've done. Even done last night, to which I would say to you, you're right, I don't know, but I know that God knows, and I know that there's nothing that you have done that has not been done before you, and that God offers the same invitation to forgiveness, that if you will turn from your sins and give your life to Christ, he will forgive you. 
He will forgive you, not because you deserve to be forgiven, no more than I deserve to be forgiven, but because he loves to save sinners. Which fourth and final, God runs his world undeniably. He runs his world undeniably. He creates powerfully, he communicates clearly, he saves graciously, and he runs his world undeniably. All 1,189 chapters of the Bible are working together to tell one undeniable truth. God saves sinners from creation to the flood to the Tower of Babel to the family tree of the patriarchs from Israel and Egypt and then out of Egypt. The entire time, God has been gracious. Even his law, the very 10 commandments he gives to the Israelites is an expression of his graciousness. Not because they're trying to earn his grace, They already received his grace. Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He then gives them the law. He's not giving the law so that then they can earn his favor. They already got his favor, not because of anything that they've done. This is the remarkable reality. He is running his world undeniably. Friends, you and I have questions about why things are happening in this world personally, nationally, globally, politically, economically. We've got all kinds of questions, and very few of us have answers. But you know who does have an answer? God. And that's okay with me. I'm okay if he knows, and not just knows, but if he's working, and he is. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God creates powerfully, communicates clearly, saves graciously, and runs his world undeniably. I don't know if you've ever seen a classical conductor in concert. I have been to a classical musical concert. I have to tell you, it's a bit distracting because you hear the music, which is amazing, but you can't help but to be distracted by the conductor. I mean, that man or woman's up there just going at it, just like, like having an epileptic seizure. And it's somehow working wonderfully. And those people somehow know how to interpret this versus that versus this. They're like, dude, you should get that checked out. But you hear it and you see it. My concern for you is that you might not see it. You might see all of human history, you might read the word of God, and you might actually miss the conductor's masterful strokes. As God is orchestrating all of history, heading in one direction for one purpose, our good for those who are in Christ and his glory. And that is a comfort for us and a helpful setup for what we're then going to see in the book of Joshua. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit Grace Church. Dot Miami.